Blog Talk Radio. Welcome once again to Madam Perry Salon. I am delighted to be here with you. I'm your host, your groove mistress, and your spiritual advisor, Madam Perry. But you can call me Jen, Jennifer, JP, Perry. I'm just happy to be here. And hey, thanks to everybody. I got a, a new review up on, I think it was on the Apple podcast page, because you know some you can leave reviews for the show on, I know on Stitcher, and Apple, I don't know about all the other podcast platforms, if you can leave a review, but I know on those can. I got another one, um, a very nice one for somebody that said they like to listen when they're on a long drive or taking a walk. And, of course, since since podcast, I mean, right now, if you're listening on November 25th, 2020, at 8.01 p.m. Um, Eastern Time, at 1 a.m. tomorrow, the 26th, in London time, wherever you are. Um, in fact, I think that is, is the actual GMT minus zero, and I'm GMT minus five. But uh, then you're listening live. But after this, you can listen to it, uh, any of the podcasts on whatever your preferred platform is, whenever you want. Been a lot of fun. We've been having so many cool guests. Uh, Grammy-winning saxophonist Dave Koz was here, and what an absolute delight he is. Um, and so check out his new CD, A New Day. Uh, it is it's, it's good. It was Dave Koz. And who else do we have here? Oh, Jen Lancaster and her newest book, Welcome to the United States of Anxiety. And I met somebody recently at the doctor's office that had heard that podcast and bought the book. It is so good. Jen Lancaster is brilliant. And it's a very funny book, too. Uh, gosh. It's like, oh, it was last night we had Lisa Smart. She's a linguist and poet. And it was her book uh, about the Final Words Project. Uh, it was called Words at the Threshold. And what it is, she works with Dr. Raymond Moody, the, the uh, physician psychologist who coined the term near-death experience. And she's talking about when you're with people and they're at the end of life, what are their last words? What do they say? They may not make sense to you, but if you listen, uh, you'll learn a lot because sometimes it's their own language. It might seem like nonsense, but it's very um, very interesting book. And also, before that, we had Zigzag Claiborne. He is a writer of science fiction, Afrofuturism. His newest book is Afro Puffs Are the Antenna of the Universe. And he is so much fun. Uh, get the book. I made a mistake at first of thinking it was a kid's book and I was going to send it to my friend's grandchildren. But then, thankfully, I read it first. Uh, it's a grown up book, Afro Puffs Are the Antenna of the Universe. And um, he and I are going to collaborate, as you might have heard, pretty soon we're going to do a show dedicated to Buckaroo Banzai and then one on Star Trek. Just, 
just for the fun of it. Now, tonight, this is so cool. You know how you meet somebody, and then you meet somebody else cool? You know, that person's cool and fun and exciting, and then you meet through them. When I had met Wendy Moton on recently, she is a singer. She toured for years uh, as a vocalist doing duets with uh, Julio Iglesias on tour with him and several other people, and she had a featured... um, featured on the Grand Ole Opry not long ago on a show with Vince Gill, and I forget the other person. Uh, so she's a great singer. And through her, I met somebody who had done promotion work on one of her albums, and that is uh, Mr. Graham Slater. He is a I said that he's a British music promoter and a thriller author, but he's also been a musician. He travels a lot. Um, he, you know, I could give you the this story, but it's so much more exciting coming to, from him. So let me welcome, I am so thrilled to have here in the genie bottle, the man himself, Mr. Graham Slater. Welcome to Madame Perry Salon, Graham. Hi, great to be with you. And then he said whoosh then as I came out the bottle. But <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Great, great to be with you. <laughs> I'm glad to have you here. And congratulations, your brand new book, your newest book is I Will Survive. And yeah. when you start reading it, I wonder how any of these people survived. <laughs> well, they, they do, as you know. They, they, they do survive, but uh, in, in difficult, different and difficult ways. But they certainly do survive, yeah, yeah. So tell us a little bit about you, because uh, your story, like I said, I could, I, I do intros all the time, but yours will sound so much better coming from you. You're a musician, um, you've played a lot, you toured, I believe, in Germany, played the Cavern Club and cool places like that. Yep, yep. Yeah, I mean, I was a musician in the 60s, so I, I followed with several groups, actually, <clears throat> followed in the in the footsteps of the Beatles, um, because they were based in Hamburg for much longer than most people realize. Um, George Harrison was 17 when he went over with them, and uh, he actually set fire to a room at the back of one of the clubs, and he oh, was thrown no. out of Germany. I didn't know that. <laughs> yeah, he was thrown out, but he was he was 18 a couple of weeks later, so he was able to go back. <clears throat> but, um, yeah, the Beatles, so I, I followed in their footsteps, really, playing at the Star Club and the Top Ten and other clubs, in the Reeperbahn, which is the San Poli, which is the, the red light district of um, of Hamburg. And I was there nearly five years, and I absolutely loved it. It was a, I was only 16, actually. He was 17. I was 16. And to, to wake up in, in you know, a hotel, a, a dingy hotel in the red light district, uh, having just <laughs> literally driven all the way, not me personally, but the, the singer was the driver. We only had one driver, and he was shattered. But we, we, we drove to Hamburg and uh, woke up the next day, and... We were actually in the red light district, but we didn't know it was like that because it was daytime and uh, it looked perfectly normal to us. But uh, two days later, when we went back at night after um, the second night at the club, we couldn't believe it was the same place. It's where we were actually living <laughs> in a <the> little flat. <laughs> That's funny. So what did you play? I played the Hammond organ. I mean, there were very few oh. around at that time. But uh, Hammond organ, and then 102, which is two manuals, um, and I loved it. Um, it was a great instrument, and everyone wanted to play it, you know, because any any keyboard player, really, in those days, they had Vox Continentals or Farfisas, uh, which is used on Runaway, Del Shannon's record, Farfisas, mm-hmm. um, and a very different sound. But, of course, Hammond is a unique sound, isn't it? And um, 
it, it's it's something that any keyboard player and and uh, there was a band at the Star Club for a month called uh, the Chicken Shack, and the keyboard player mm-hmm. with them was Christine Perfect, who of course went on joined Fleetwood Mac. She married um, one of the guys in Fleetwood Mac, and <clears throat> she's still with them now. So yeah, she she had a little old play on my Hammond and loved it. Wow. You know, you mentioned the Farfisa. I just learned what that was um, about a week ago. My husband, who's a musician, told me because I think he saw one for sale or something. And uh, I said, I've never even heard of this before. And could you describe it for anybody else like me who didn't know? <laughs> well, Farfisa, it's it's um, black, and gray, black and gray with a vinyl coating over it. Um Thin legs, and it's it's well. It was used on Runaway, Del Shannon's record, Runaway, and it's got a very different sound. Mm. Um, it's quite a full sound. A Vox Continental, which was on House of the Rising Sun, uh, with the Animals, and a lot of the early records, Dave Clark Five, and and bands like that, they used the um, the Vox Continentals, but they were very stringy, and very thin, um, and the keys were reversed in colour. So the white keys were black, and the black keys were white. Oh, okay. um, that's, that's a Vox. Farfisa, as I say. Farfisa was two manuals. Um, most of the Vox Continentals, I think, only had one manual. But the Farfisa, most of those had two, um, which is great if you're playing because you can set different tones on each on each keyboard, you see. So then, yeah, as um, <laughs> and how magnificent. <laughs> I mean, you know, because, yeah, you think when you say the Del Shannon Runaway, you know, immediately that comes to mind. You know exactly what it sounds like and yes, uh yes. you can just hear that tone and think of that song you know and which takes you back of course but uh so then after after you were playing in, in uh hamburg different places and then where did you go from there to, from a musician to well I, I played for nearly five years as i say in germany went to holland up to sweden <clears throat> um denmark but then uh i came back well, i joined a band actually a soul band um, who, again, we we spent months and months in Germany, but we came back to England and we uh, made a couple of records. Um, the band was called the Manchester Playboys, a great soul band, you know, it was a great, great band. I mean, a really, really good. We had trumpet and sax. We didn't have a guitarist, <clears throat> but I used one of the uh, the lower keyboard on the uh, on the Hammond to, to give the fours for the guitar sounds, you know. The I used the left hand for that. <laughs> Um, right. And and then and then I decided to leave the band because the trumpet player, who also played a bit of guitar on other songs, um, he met a, a girl in Berlin. So he went back to Berlin and lived with her for many years. And uh, our saxophone player lived in London, and the band were in Manchester, and uh, he lived in London. So I met my wife at one of the clubs in London. Uh, we did two nights at different clubs, and she came to the first first gig because she knew the band from when she lived up in Manchester. And then the second night, um, she came to a, a very different club. And uh, I've got to be honest, I'd been out with an Italian air hostess, and we went to see a film called Zulu, and I'd, we'd been smoking pot in the pictures in the cinema um, and, and, and drinking quite a bit. And uh, I ended up walking into the club about 11 o'clock. We didn't go on until midnight. Uh, it was a very exclusive club where you know the Rolling Stones and all the bands used to go in there, away from any fans. You know, it was a let your hair down sort of place. Uh-huh. And um, uh, she was in there with she had a, a, a black friend um, from British Guiana, 
and they were sat there and I walked in and we hit it off straight away and eight months later we were married wow. and I only saw her yeah and I only saw her probably well, I don't know a couple of dozen times between when we met and when we actually got married and we decided to get married on the Tuesday evening and we married on the Saturday <laughs> and, and everyone thought she was she was pregnant you know so um well, well, <laughs> it was incredible but when we had our 50th anniversary uh, a couple of years ago now two years ago two of her three of her friends who came to the wedding um came down for the the party and i did a little speech and one of the girls was her cousin and I gave a little speech and I said, you know, I'm going to let you all into a secret now. Um, when we got married, people thought we were pregnant or my wife was pregnant. She wasn't. And I looked at her cousin. What I didn't know was that that, that her, her cousin had to get married because she was pregnant after we got married. And I, I didn't find out until after I'd finished my little speech. It was a bit embarrassing, really, uh, because I was looking at her when I said it. <laughs> oh, well, it had um, been a long yeah. time, but still. And then I started songwriting, and uh, we had a, an audition with Decker, um, and, uh, Dick Rowe, a guy who turned down the Beatles, and we had an audition with all original music. It was just Hammond bass and drums. And um, the, the bass player who I'd written the songs with uh, went back to London the following week with songs he'd written on his own. And mm -hmm. Decker said, well, no, we really want the two of you, uh, songwriters, and a publisher wanted us as, you know, uh, a, you know, a partnership as writers. So it never happened. So um, that was it. So then I set up my own recording studio back in 69, a demo studio, and um, and started writing and recording in there on my own. And then I started recording bands, and then I got into music and set up the company in 1975 and it, it's still going strong which is a music publisher and indie record label that's so cool looking at the manchester playboys and this was uh i just found this in something called manchester beat uh the first lineup alan watkinson on bass malcolm tag yep, Randall still there. Back, peter okay. Semensky on drums yeah stuart fay yeah, he's a guy who went to live in berlin yeah, and this one's got a, the next guy's got a little nickname in the middle. It says Graham Sandy Sclater, Hammond Organ. Uh, same moi, yeah. I'll tell you about the nickname, shall I? Please. <laughs> well, well when, when, we first went, when we first went to Germany, um, there were five of us in the band, and we all decided, for, I don't know why, to have nicknames. I've no idea why. I mean, the Beatles did it as well, believe it or not, but we didn't know that at the time. <clears throat> and... There was a very famous organist um, over here who, who played at the Blackpool, uh, played the Blackpool organ in the ballroom in the Blackpool Tower, um, and he used to do a lot of radio work. He was called Sandy McPherson, so the obvious choice for me was Sandy. And when I met my wife, she knew me only as Sandy, and my mum even used to write letters to me and refer to me as Sandy. And everyone abroad knew me as Sandy. Um, and I've got still got letters from girls that wrote to me or wrote to my mum while I was away because I didn't write a lot. So I said, look, just write to my mum. Send my mum a letter. 
So they used to write to her. Your assistant. Okay. (laughs) Exactly. So yeah, she was. So um, it was great. I mean, I I found a letter recently, and and because we we got the organ, I don't know if you what you call it in America, but we got on what we call a higher purchase over here. So you you put a deposit down, you pay so much a month. Is it like Mm -hmm. finance or? So we did that, and I I found a letter, and it said uh, she said to me, she said. You're not sending any money home, but now you've got your Hammond organ, the lovely Hammond organ. Surely um, they pay you more because you've got that one. <laughs> and because it didn't work like that. <laughs> Bless her. Yeah, yeah. Oh, let's see. This says that the, uh, the, the Manchester Playboys had a regular broadcast on Belgium, 15-minute weekly slot. That's yep. pretty cool. Yep. And we had, we, well, I'll tell you what we recorded over there, which we, we had a hit with, was Wooly Bully, which was an organ-based song, of course. <laughs> <clears throat> yeah, we had a hit record with that. We recorded in Romania, um, and Romania was frightening because we weren't allowed to move on stage. We weren't allowed to um, smile. Um, we just played, and, and we had security guys, guys with us all the time. Um, making sure we didn't sort of not do anything naughty, but make sure we didn't sort of go off the rails. And, and you know, they, they controlled us, really. And it was quite frightening, really. It was very frightening, to be honest. Um, but the Playboys were a great band. Um, we had two managers. We had um, a multimillionaire who was a, a lawyer, and he had a Rolls Royce in 1967 with a phone in it and a coloured television. Whoa. He was a baller. And his son, his son was, oh, he had two sons, but one of his sons was a roadie for a band called The Herd, and the singer of that band was Peter Frampton. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Wow. Um, and our other manager was a, a, a session player called Bobby Graham, and he played drums on You Really Got Me, the oh. Tinks record. <laughs> He, he played on so many records. I mean, he, he was a top, top session guy, you know. Um, uh-huh. So, yeah. So we, we, we were, you know, I say we made it. We did okay. I mean, we were pro, touring everywhere, good gigs, reasonable money. Um, and we had three-piece suits because we were playboys. Um, <laughs> and, um, yeah, I mean, if you've looked at pictures, you'll see them there. If you, you know, click any they pictures on the site. they got great pictures, but, and- Anybody listening, if you, oh, you just kind of, you know how it is in this world. Just put the name Manchester Playboys and whatever your search engine oh. is. And this came up on masterbeat.com, and there's more. I think you've got a Facebook page, too. Uh, yeah, we have, yeah. For your yeah. fans. And just a good-looking bunch of guys. I think I'm, I'm picturing you in Romania not being able to move or smile. I guess they thought you were going to do some kind of uh, degenerate American Elvis Presley move to make everybody no, crazy. That, well, that's right. I mean, we, we weren't that sort of band. I mean, Kerry the singer was great. He came, In fact, on our wedding anniversary, our 50th anniversary, he came down and he actually sang My Girl, which is uh, one of my wife's well, it's our song, really, because we used to play that. And um, he sang My Girl with um, the musician we had, who was, who was a writer that I worked with. And he hadn't sung for years, and it was wonderful, you know. It was just great. Um, but, yeah, no, we were a good band. I mean, you know, we were very popular fans wherever we went. Um, no, it was a great band. But, as I say, we, you know, when I knew that Stuart was going to leave, and then Malcolm, who married uh, Gisela from Hanover, um, he was the driver that used to, when we had days off, if we were in England, he would drive from Manchester back down to London. So I would then go and see my, my girlfriend. 
Um, and when he said he was leaving, it would have meant that I'd have been left in Manchester with the Hammond organ, and you need a van to move it, and I wouldn't have been mm -hmm. able to have gotten down to London. Mm. So I made the decision to leave as well. Well, you did a lot. And so, it, it, yeah, anybody who looks up can tell that, that band, the, the Manchester Playboys had a lot going on. You guys have quite a career there. And let me, and that's in the days before you had social media to pump this up with. You know, you had it going on. So um, to just to move forward, and by the way, you were talking about doing the, without having a guitar player, and yeah. you doing the part on the Hammond organ. You know, it's things about, uh, you've you've heard a lot of musician jokes. Yeah. You know musician Go jokes. On. Did you hear the one? How many how many bass players does it take to change a light bulb? <laughs> you know what the answer more is? More than one, that's for sure. Sorry, no. how many? None. <laughs> None. Because the keyboard player None. can do it with his left hand. Yes, he can. Uh, you're dead <laughs> right. You're dead right. Oh, or you could stand on the organ and do it. <laughs> <laughs> if it was near the light bulb. <laughs> <laughs> See, whenever I whenever I hired musicians for a gig, usually the keyboard guy would go, "Are we going to have a bass player? Or do I have to do it?" But if I had a that's on the men. But if I hired a woman bass player, that said, "Do you have a bass player? I mean, a woman keyboardist?" That say, "Do you have a bass yeah. player? Because if not, I can do it with my left hand, and we can all make more money." <laughs> that's right, of course. Well, I mean, the Hammond, my Hammond had foot pedals as well, but I. I never really used them. I only used them for effect. When I, when I sort of left the band and came back back down to Exeter, uh, and then set up my own little band doing all original material. But before that, I've, I've got to tell you a little story. Between when I when I left, I I stayed with my wife and her parents in London, and I was auditioning for various bands. And uh, I spent two weeks with James Taylor at Apple. He'd come oh. over with, um, yeah, Peter Asher had brought him over. Uh, to London because um, Paul was going out with Jane Asher, his sister, and uh, he brought him over. And I spent a couple of weeks routining his new songs up in the the loft of the Apple Building. And in the Apple Building were all the Beatles' uh, Vox uh, amplifiers and some of their guitars and Ringo's drums. And when they did their last gig on the roof, they used all those instruments that were in that loft. And literally, there was a door out onto the roof, so. That's about as close as I got to the Beatles, because Apple, it was, it was running wild, to be honest. And people were ripping <laughs> them off right, left and centre. So, um, but I didn't, I didn't um, and your husband will appreciate this, um, James Taylor used a capo on his guitar, which uh, for, for non-guitarists, it's a little gadget that you put on the neck of the guitar and you can move it up and down to make playing easier. And I've been with various musicians for like five six years and i'd never seen one of these and i certainly had never seen a guitarist um use one um and so as the you know the days went on there i'm thinking well this guy isn't a real musician i mean it's you know he's not a guitarist <laughs> and do i want to be here and do i want to do it and uh, so i made the decision um you know to, to not continue after the two weeks but with hindsight you know um it was a bad move at the time, but it was also a good move at the time because, you know, poor old James Taylor did go through some hard times with drugs and drink and goodness knows what. And I think if I'd stayed with him and toured with him, I may not be here now. You know, it's possible mm. I wouldn't be. 
you know, so it's probably the right move, you know, and, and I wouldn't be married, I wouldn't have the kids, grandchildren, you know, I wouldn't be writing, so um, it's probably the right thing to do, but it, you do think about it as you get older, you think, should I have, would it have been, would, would my life have been different, or would I have had a life, you know, you just don't know, do you? Well, you sound like you're pretty good at, at, at knowing what to do when, like you seem to have a, a good um inner compass and uh, touchstone on knowing where to go because after that then you know you did work as music but when did you go as as a promoter rather but when did you go and make the transition to your next career and then to becoming a writer um well promote managing bands was something that it was all part of the, the business really because we set up tabitha music in 1975 um, initially as a publishing company, but then I started producing records and borrowed some money from the bank and mortgaged the house and raised the money to start making records, uh, which I loved. And we had our own label in, in, in the Benelux and in Spain and in Japan. Um, and we licensed tracks all over the world. In fact, I'm just thinking back. This is, this is a story. One Sunday afternoon in the winter here in Exeter, there was a knock on the door. And there was this guy, must have been about six foot three, with a cowboy hat on. This is England, remember? On a Sunday, a winter Sunday afternoon. And it was a guy from Las Vegas. And I'm trying to think of his name. And he was a songwriter. And he, he, he said, uh, I, oh, I can't remember what he was called. And, and uh, he said, I'm a songwriter. He said, you're a pop. I said, yeah. I said, it's Sunday, you know. I haven't re- well, can I come in, you know, man? I'd, I'd, so he came in, and we went into the studio, and he played me um, a tape that he'd he'd recorded uh, about spacemen, and it was rubbish. <laughs> <laughs> and he said, you know, he said, you can come over to Vegas and blah, blah, blah. Um, but it was so bad. And <laughs> But he'd found me, you know, on a Sunday <laughs> afternoon. Um, it, you know, my studio was at the side of the house, so you know, I, I didn't go anywhere else. If it had been a studio on its own, then obviously I wouldn't have been there, probably on a Sunday. Um, but yeah, so uh, I needed to. I when I was when I started publishing and, and releasing records, the bands didn't have managers. None of the singers had managers, and to me, it made sense not for control, but to be able to make decisions. And I produced their music, so it was a case of, you know, I knew I knew the guys, I knew what they wanted. I didn't take, um, you know, a, a, a management percentage because I was their publisher and their record label. Um, so I did did that for them as part of my service. Whereas a lot of the top bands, um, you know, had a manager and an agent and this, that, and the other, and you, you know, they made very little at the end of it. So I then started promoting gigs. So I, I booked Iron Maiden and a, a band I had an, in London called Urchin. Um, and I booked all sorts of bands around the UK and into Europe. Um, and it worked very, very well, and I enjoyed doing it. But, of course, the problem is when you book bands, if anyone leaves, you've got a problem. Oh, yeah. And um, I, I, it it, it was a bit hairy, you know. You you set these gigs up three, four weeks, three months, a year ahead, and then mm-hmm. somebody leaves and the band falls apart and they, they, they've got no allegiance to you. You know, they, they're just off and doing their own thing again. So I tended to ease back on that. Um, and then the guitarist singer from Urchin went to school with several of the Iron Maiden guys. So in 1980, he joined Iron Maiden. And um, three years ago, we released the demos 
that that band did in 1978 on vinyl um, in Japan and Germany. And I did a deal last year with um, an independent company in Brazil who were going to release vinyl and CDs over there. But I don't know. I've not had anything back from them. So it could be that he he was maybe a fan and just wanted to um, to have everything, you know. (laughs) You don't know what people do yet. True. And, you know, you're going to meet all kind of people everywhere, but something about that business, I don't know, something about the music business will bring all kinds of people out. I mean, look at Terry Melcher and, and um, what is that? what's the guy's name? Uh, Charles Manson. So, <laughs> Yeah, yeah, well, that's right. It does. I mean, music is, um, is a, I don't know. I, I, I think it, it goes back to what I said about James Taylor, you know, my life would have been so different. And I would have been a very different person had I been just a, you know, I say just a professional musician touring the world. Um, you, you, you're you in a different bubble then, you know, and um, although I've done that with bands, um, it's not where I want to be, to be honest. You know, I, I like I like the comforts, the home comforts, and I like now to do my writing. And I still promote music and publish music and everything else, but it's changed. The world's changed. How do you feel it's changed? Well, the, well, this year specifically, I mean, no gigs. Uh, a lot of the venues are closing, the theatres, the pubs, all the places that have bands. Um, music is not uh, sold in the way it used to. Everything is done now by streaming or through iTunes. So unless you're a, you're a band on the road and you, you sell your merchandise and um, you know, you've got everything else going, then, you know, you're not going to make a lot of money. Top bands will. Your Coldplay's, Chris, um, you know, Chris from Coldplay literally came from a, about a mile up the road from here, Chris Martin. His dad had a big caravan company here, selling caravans. He sold that last year, but, um, you know, and Muse came from literally five miles down the road. So those top bands will still make money. Because they're still selling records, they're still selling CDs, they're releasing on vinyl and things like that. But the big money is, is touring and the merchandise because, um, you know, they, there's no real income now from airplay. Apart from if you get a, if you get, um, if you get on the playlist with the BBC, then it's good. You'll earn some money because then you pick up all the royalties from the, um, the smaller stations and, and all the other PRS performing rights things, you know. But um, unless you can get on that BBC, um, you, the chances of selling a lot of records or, or earning anything as a songwriter and a publisher um, are very few and far between. That's true. Things have changed a lot. You know, like the old, I forget which comedian said it, but it's like the joke about how um, um, all the, uh, and this was maybe about five, ten years ago, when I think Napster and things like that were cranking up, said all the gangsters, you know, types, wannabe gangsters doing the rap music and all this, talking about, you know, popping a cap in somebody and thugs, thug life or whatever. And then when the Napster stuff came up, then they would come out saying, hey, don't take people's music without paying them that's criminal that's a crime it's like, oh. <laughs> yeah well they, they do it now don't they so much for your thug life right don't steal your royalties now it's on the other foot um so <laughs> what what a life you've had and you've traveled so much um as a musician and the places you played and i see i want to get to uh back to your 
your new book, I Will Survive, and your other books, because having been to Amsterdam twice myself, been to England, I haven't traveled as much as you or my husband, but when I'm there, you know, I'm, I'm walking the streets, I'm visiting places and, and seeing some friends that I've made, and that's one of the things I loved about your book, I Will Survive, where it opens, even though the character Liam um, the main character, Liam, he's an East End criminal, alcoholic, came from a criminal family, kind of reminds me of the craze, um, but he has to leave well, his well, life. I'm just interrupting you. I had a review of, from someone who bought the previous book because, because Liam was in that, and they said it makes, makes Ronnie and Reggie the craze look like <laughs> um, uh, pussycats, literally. Oh! Oh! <laughs> Take that, Ronnie and Reggie. So, uh... <laughs> my my nephew's got two cats, and they're called Ronnie and Reggie as well. <laughs> <laughs> you know, every now and then something like that turns up. That's funny. There was a, I don't know if it was on a um, what show it was some some British murder mystery show we were watching, and there was a guy who was alleged to have had a, a history. Some big crime boss, and he never talked about. He didn't name names or anything, but that's what those were the names of his dogs as well. Uh, but yeah, <laughs> yes, yeah, so you, yeah. you think about that and that whole story, and then of course, then you think about the, the movie and the cute Kemp brothers playing them. So you think, oh well, that's it. Yeah, that's, yeah. that's that's uh, what was that? Was what Martin and Steve Kemp? So. <laughs> But, yeah, they played them. They did it very well, actually. They did it very, very oh, well. Oh, gosh. Yes, they did. Ooh. They really did. Mummy um, loves her little monsters. <laughs> she, well, well anyway. it's, funny you say, it's funny you say that, you know, because um, I used to do, do a lot with um, um, spiritualist uh, people and things, and um, I do believe we've all got a, a, a way of, sensing what's going to come up and things and you mentioned about end of life when you were talking just now you know in the intro um but but this guy said that you know a mother her son could be the worst murderer but to the to the mother he's still her son and she mm-hmm. probably wouldn't see that side of him oh no not at all you know so, so I mean, you know they wouldn't see that side of him. They might they might see his anger sometimes, but generally it's their son. And and if he has if he has sort of slipped and got into very bad ways, well it may not be his fault. It could be his father or whatever oh, happened to yeah. him when he was younger. Never. You know. Yeah, one of my brothers was like that. And no matter what, I wouldn't call him a career criminal. I call him more of a freelance felon because he wasn't more organized. <laughs> <laughs> but. <laughs> And it didn't matter what he was in jail. You know, my mother always had it. When he was in court for armed robbery once, my mother was going all the reasons for the judge about why it couldn't be him, no matter how many witnesses. It couldn't be him because this, this, this. But if it did, well, you know, he was a 10-month baby. You know, there was always a reason. But, you know. (laughs) (laughs) You know, it's like I always say he wasn't that smart of a criminal, but – but yes, no matter what it was, arm. I think one of uh, I was working at the police department once, and it was during one of his uh, one of my brother's forays. Here's a crazy story: him and his girlfriend at this big fancy mall in Atlanta, uh, big high dollar mall at the time, and they had using stolen credit cards, and they get caught. And then the girlfriend keeps saying, telling the cop, "You can't, you can't check my car. You know you have no right to check my car. Make sure you know you can't check my car." Planting the idea in his mind that he should check their car. 
you know, because that's what right. she wanted. So as soon as he leaves, they're yeah, yeah. handcuffed in the back seat. They climb over the seat, steal the car, go to a friend's house. Uh, the friend's not there. The door's locked. They break the window to get in. And then when the whole thing comes out, my mother goes, well, if the door was locked, how were they supposed to get in? You know, they had to break yes, the window. Yes. Oh, my goodness me. <laughs> wow. 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 <laughs> So, yeah, I got a (laughs) – you're right. You're absolutely right. Um, Now, so we're talking about Liam. Liam is uh, the thing. Um, He leaves – he has to leave his wife and kids in London after a fire. And this is after the other book, which is called Love Shack. Yeah, yeah, Love Shack. This is almost a sequel, really, to to that. But but they are – I say this to everyone. They are standalone books. If you read Love Shack first – you read I Will Survive. If you read I Will Survive first, Love Shack is, is very different because it, it tells you how Liam <clears throat> ended up in Amsterdam and what went on there in more detail while he's running what is effectively a very successful bar and brothel in the red light district. It's, mm. it's very successful, you know. But, of course, the start of I Will Survive, the bar gets firebombed. So, <clears throat> and there is some backstory in there which I had to put in because... Um, you need to know how he got there, you know. But um, but yeah, he's, he's a very sad character. But the the books both work very well separately, you know. Oh yeah, so yeah, it starts off the love shack is a bar, a brothel, um, doing good business, and this is and this takes place on New Year's Eve of all years, 1999, when everybody's expecting strange things to happen anyway. And yeah, that's right. That's right. So and, uh, yeah, so it, it, talk about it. Yeah, go on. No, I want to well, hear you talk about it because it starts off with a firebomb. Okay. I mean, that listen, these books don't. If you haven't, if you've read Graham Slater before, I'm not telling you anything new. If you haven't, beware. This book it, it starts it starts off just smacking, you know, just <laughs> just. <clears throat> well, I, I try to grab people, and when I do my talks, which I'm sure will come on later on the cruise ships. I tell people you've got to grab the reader in the first page, really. Um, <clears throat> but the but the bar is firebombed by they're having a party in the Love Shack. Um, events happen. They're having a party, and two guys on motorbikes in black leather throw uh, Molotov cocktails through the window. <clears throat> and like all well, not like a lot of places in Amsterdam in the old town, which is where this is, De Vallen, which is the red light district. Um, and very few of them have rear entry, rear exits because, you know, they're built back to back and they're very high and narrow because of the taxes. So, of course, the the, the fire starts um, right at the front by the front door. And, um, of course, people can't get out. Uh, and that is the problem. But the other thing is in in uh, Amsterdam and much of Holland on New Year's Eve, they have the biggest firework. I say displays. Everyone walks around. Everyone has parties in their home. And then at midnight, they all come out and let off fireworks. So mm-hmm. <clears throat> because of that, the fire brigade really are strategically placed around the city um, because you do get odd fires and things. But, of course, it's an ideal time if you want because everyone's looking up at the sky. No one's looking down on the roads. Uh, so these two guys on their motorbikes literally throw the Molotov cocktails and speed away. Um, and it's... Difficult for the fire engines to get out because everyone's on the streets. They have to come from Sheephole Airport to get there <clears throat> and a big park where they have a firework display. So, in theory, there are no survivors. And that's the title, I Will Survive, because 
um, the press and the, the police chief and the fire chief actually talk to camera and say, we don't believe there will be any survivors. So you, you, the reader doesn't know that, and uh, no one else does. But, of course, they do get out, um, and they go through horrific um, you know, burns and injuries. Um, but eventually they are able then to uh, get on to uh, get on and track down track down who who the perpetrators are and there is more than one and they're very different people um, so hence the travel they need to they need to go to Hamburg uh, and Berlin and then they go to Tallinn in Estonia and then they go to the Canary Islands and then they go back to up to Russia oh they don't go to Russia no they don't but uh, there is a character in Russia in St Petersburg uh, but they go to Tallinn, and then the guy from St. Petersburg goes across to Helsinki and then goes to Hamburg. So it's, a, it's not a travel log. All the, all the stops on the way, and they are spread out because they don't just go on a journey. They, they're backwards and forwards to Amsterdam. Um, but, but they're on the road tracking down these people. And um, uh, it, it's a lot of information that I picked up when I was researching for it. But it... it it gives gives people an insight into those places that they wouldn't know even if they just mm-hmm. travelled there for a holiday. You know, it's it's information, but it's interesting information, and and it, it the characters change during the during the um, three, four, five months that they're, they're from from after the fire until they're ready to get on the road again. You know, um, Interpol are involved, all sorts of people involved, um, trying to find out who did it as well. Um, and there's uh, some horrible characters in it, um, mm-hmm. but but yeah, yeah. So a lot a lot going on in there. A lot going on. <laughs> oh yeah, there is. Um, how many books have you written? I've written eight novels, and I wrote a book which I was asked to write uh, on the cruises called Write On, and that's W R I T E on exclamation mark, and that's for people who want to write or would like to write but don't know where to start and it also covers family history and it covers memoirs um uh, and the basis the basics and basis to start writing it's to motivate people and get them to write um and it's done inc- it's done incredibly well um i mean I always so loads when i'm on the ships but but new writers um people who want to write you know it's it tells them how to research for family history. It tells them how to set it out. Um, uh, and I've got a whole example in there of how I would start a book if I had an idea and how I would grow it until I, and the timelines and backstories, uh, and then how I would start writing it. And uh, I go through the whole process for anyone, how to save it every, set you set the computer to autosave every three minutes or two minutes, depending on how fast you type, and to back it up onto at least three three different uh, thumb drives or onto a hard drive as well as the computer. You know, because people, I've lost work. I've spent months writing and lost it all. Oh, yeah. Um, let's see. Last, let's see, week before last, Susan Cox, a writer, she lives in America, but she's from England, from Kent, I believe, and she's had the same problem with her second book. She said she was very careful and had everything, you know, saved. She'd heard about, you know, computers crashing, whatever, so she had everything saved, 
on a, you know, a, a thumb drive, a memory stick, and had that in her purse. Then while she was asleep, somebody broke into her house, stole the computer, stole her notes, but they also took her purse. So that was gone, too. So, yeah, anything oh, wow. can happen. Yeah, I mean, I do. I do. If I go, if I'm going away, and I often forget where I put it. I will back up, um, back up everything again and again, you know, um, and put it in a filing cabinet and put one here, take one with me. Um, obviously, I've got a laptop and I've got my PC. I prefer my PC for writing, but I have so many copies in different places um, because it's you can never re reconstitute it. You know, you think you, you when you rewrite it, actually, it's probably better than it was before. But uh, it's it's very frustrating and and incredibly upsetting when you've spent maybe written or well, spent months and maybe written eighty thousand words or more, and then you lose the lot. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, oh, so yeah. you, you've you've got to back it up and, and multiple places, but people will, and you can lose it and have it stolen or fires. You know. Oh gosh, yes, yes, indeed, anything can happen. Well, I want to take just a um, just a short little break, as so okay. I can um, let the dog out, have a glass of water, woof, and woof. you as well. <laughs> I know yeah. you can hear her, and I'll be right back with. <laughs> <laughs> the absolutely uh, enchanting Graham Slater. Okay, thank you. So, Chuck, talk to us about Fisdale being the Knicks' new coach. What's your uh, thoughts on that? Well, well, I, I tell you right now, Ernie, it don't matter who gonna coach this team. They don't got no talent on it, and I don't. I don't really feel I talk. That's kind of harsh. I don't feel I talk about the Knicks right Do now. Talk about lunch? No. <laughs> what would you like to talk about, Chuck? See, Ernie, I've been listening to a podcast called Madame Perry Salon. And I think Jennifer Perry, she's a great host. I mean, she got all these bestseller authors, Rasta, all the comedians. What about people we that could, don't have rings? Here we go. Real funny, Real funny. But I think she's great. And I think people would love her show. She got a great laugh. She make The laugh come out of nowhere like an eagle come in there and just steal the whole show. It's, it's it's a beautiful thing. It's not terrible. Not terrible, and sometimes that's, that's the best compliment you can get. Hey, back here with a British music promoter, thriller author, musician, and man with some of the most magnificent stories. If you got a party that you want to make sure it doesn't bomb, you want to make sure that no one forgets your party, invite Graham Slater and his <laughs> wife. I'm sure she has plenty of stories to tell as well. So, uh, you mentioned your teaching, your writing uh, classes on cruises. Now, yeah. what a sweet gig. Tell us about that. Okay, well, um, uh, one of my songwriters is also a comedian, and he was doing the cruises probably about 10, 15 years ago. He could fly out to Florida or Miami and go down to Mexico and fly back and he was doing that a lot but he'd, he'd had enough and I asked him probably about seven or eight years ago I said Andy you know why don't you um can't you help me and get get me on uh, on there and he, he said yeah 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 nothing <laughs> and five <laughs> that's right well he, he's a songwriter and he's he does a lot of tv and uh, he does yeah. all sorts you know so um they get busy he's yeah he's busy and and I wouldn't say he's selfish he's not at all but but you know, everyone's got their lives, and uh, he's, mm-hmm. he's he's got to earn a living. He does pantomime and 
goodness knows what. So he's and he's songwriting and he does all sorts. So he's got to keep keep that going, you know. Um, and about five and odd years ago, I I dropped him an email and I said, Andy, well, we published a song that he'd written, which um, uh, did very well in Holland, and he had a track in a film, um, which was on film for Channel Four here. Um, and I tell you, yeah, I forgot to tell you what happened. So Disney decided to re-promote it. And I'm looking on my wall here, and I've got a check, a photocopy of a check mm-hmm. from Disney. And it's got Mickey Mouse on it. I look at it now and see it now. And I had another one from Miramax, because it went out on DVD and then it went out again. So when I got, when I got the check from, from Disney, um, I do online banking so i send checks off so i sent a was going to send the check off and i thought if i just post that check they're going to think it's a joke so i put a letter in and i said look you know you may think this check is mickey mouse and he is on the check but it it's a kosher (laughs) check it's a real check (laughs) So, so when i got those in i spoke to andy and i paid him his royalties and he was chuffed a bit it's quite a lot of money and i said look you're gonna help me with the cruises and he said oh yeah i forgot i said okay so he said well just just send me a little bit about what you want to do on there so i sent him a (laughs) two-page two-page email and he came back and he said look it's too long one page is enough so he chopped a lot of stuff out i chopped a bit out emailed the young lady who books the um, speakers and creative people and I got a gig. So I, my wife wouldn't come. I wasn't keen on ever wanting to cruise. But um, I took my grandson, who was, I think, 18 at the time, and we went to the Norwegian fjords for 12 days. And the classes went down really, really well. I think I did six talks, 45-minute talks. Um, a small group of people, but it went down really, really well. And um, I think it was only back a week, and they said, look, we can give you another one. And I think we've done about eight cruises now um, in the last, what, four and a half years. We should have been doing four this year. Um, we haven't done any, but I did a 21-day over New Year and Christmas, um, which was absolutely wonderful. You know, we went to Cape Verde and we went to Amsterdam again, Hamburg, all, all over the place. It's it wonderful. So... Um, and that, as well as doing those creative talks, I now do what they call enrichment talks, which are done in the theatre. And I talk about music, and I talk about the Beatles' early days in Hamburg and what I went through over there. <clears throat> and I talk about um, flowers and plants, because <laughs> I'm, I'm from a gardening family. I mean, we're, we're a Slater family here in, in, in Exeter, uh, we've been uh, sort of market garden nurserymen for probably, th- I think it's 300 and odd, 320 odd years. So I've got a history of plants and flowers. So I, I do talks on that as well. And then I do talks on the, the one hit wonder, the story behind the hit, uh, the other story. Um, I've got about 28 talks that I do uh, in the theatres. So it's kept going. But this year, um, it's died a death, and, and to be honest, I don't know when, when it mm. will go back, and I can't see how it can go back as it was because of all the social distancing and wearing masks. But I don't see cruising being viable unless they can get the number of passengers on the ships that they need. 
Exactly, yeah. And what a sad thing. I mean, that, so if you did about eight in the last, what were you doing, two a year? Uh, no, three, on average, no, average, well, I say two a year. Um, last year we did, <clears throat> we did Easter, we did June, and then we were away in October, and I got an email while we were away asking me to do Christmas. So we did four last year. So but it's what it's wonderful, you know. Yeah, it does sound wonderful. It sounds exciting. Well, it's exciting, and of course, when you're on the ship, it's what it's what's great is you're seeing people. They because my books are on sale in the shops, and you you're walking around the ship, and you see people laying on their sunbeds reading my books <laughs> and asking me questions about them. I mean, that's the now, thing, you know. Why did you do that? Why didn't he do this? And <laughs> <laughs> that's got to be sweet. Um, just to read out some of your titles, people like Cowboys and Angels, More Than a Woman, Ticket to Ride, and Ride On, the instructional book. Uh, I Will Survive, of course, your brand new one. Uh, Hatred is the Key, We're Going to Be Famous, Love Shack, Too Big to Cry. I mean, yeah, that's that's magnificent. Now, let me ask you something else. You talked about the uh, plants. I'm, I've only read I Will Survive, and folks, it is a thriller. I mean, there some of the stuff you think, you know how you get lost into a book and you don't think about the person that wrote it because you're too busy thinking about the characters. But I got to admit, mm. and I guess because of having criminals in the family, keep thinking, what the heck has he seen or heard about or whatever to know, to come up with all this kind of torture that some of these gangsters do? <laughs> I know. I mean, it's difficult. My wife can't believe it. I, I write it. I don't swear. And she can't believe that I write it. And I mean, we've been married 50-odd years now. And, and, and she says, you know, how do you write this? And, of course, when people phone and speak to me or she comes to some of the radio studios when I'm doing interviews, and uh, she sits there and she says, you know, I don't know how he writes this. The characters take over, um, Jennifer. That's what happens. You put the characters in a situation, several characters, and they've got to get out of it. And... Um, if they've been, I mean, if, if you read, um, well, actually, in, in I Will Survive early on, I mean, Liam, it, 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 it's a flashback, but Liam is very badly tortured by um, a, a Greek Olympian weightlifter called Scipio. And, um, you know, he, he, he treats Liam very bad. So when Liam has the opportunity to repay that, then, of course, he does. Um, but it's all got to link with the scenes like the New Year's Eve and the fireworks and everything. So it all needs to link in with that. Um, but, yeah, I don't know. I don't know how I write the torture scenes and things, to be honest. <laughs> <coughs> but I have seen a lot, you see. I mean, <clears throat> I think living in Hamburg, you know, being young as I was, I mean, Hamburg was probably one of the roughest cities in the world then. I mean, not all of Hamburg, but the San Poli red light district and the docks and everything. Um, and I was in Berlin again while the war was up, and spent time there, and and you uh, and went to some of the you know um, prison camps and goodness knows what. So you do actually see things um, subconsciously, I think, and your mind automatically sort of embellishes what you're seeing. You know what I mean? I mean, they say mm-hmm. anyone who's written anyone who's written about history, it's always written by the winner. And the winner embellishes. I, I would swear that most of the battles that went on in, in history 
what you read is not what really happened, you know. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. The theory. Well, you know, <laughs> anything, yeah. Even the movie, the documentary about uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, they said the thing where they, they had her a case that she won in court, they had to lose it because of something to do with the storyline, you know, and she just goes, yeah, okay, that's right. you know, whatever, that's the way this, that's that's how you want to do the story, whatever. You know, and uh, yeah, so you never, you never can take it all. So I guess, uh, but your creative mind just kicks in. Yeah, I guess I combined mean, with everything that you've, everywhere you've been. Yeah, I think you, I think you do need, you know, to write. I do think you need to have a little bit of creativity in your body. I mean, when I wrote "Hatred is the Key," and this would be very relevant to your listeners over there. That was set in 1812, and Britain was at war with America again in 1812. And some of the people refer to it in America as the Second War of Independence. Um, But we were actually at war with America from 1812 to 1815, and that's when um, we burnt down the White House. Um, And the Battle of New Orleans, the famous one, where we were, well, (laughs) absolutely demolished, um, our argument is, well, the war had actually finished. But, of course, with respect, American people would say, well, no, it didn't, because it hadn't been ratified. So the British say, well, we weren't really fighting anymore because we, it was over. But, of course, that isn't strictly true. So writing that, I had to look at a whole new way of writing. I had to go to the prison, which is Dartmoor Prison, which is quite near to us, where the American prisoners were incarcerated and there was a massacre in there so i had to spend a lot of time researching that and bearing in mind it was 200 odd years ago mm-hmm. you've got to really immerse yourself and the prison um it's still there and it's still used but back then um it was hell on earth and uh, for me to get a feel of it i actually camped out on the moor um which is very high down for, for, for england um, uh, during the winter in the snow, just to tr- get a feel of how the American prisoners um, dealt with the freezing cold. Um, and you've got to go through it. And when I researched Love Shack, I actually went to an Alcoholics Anonymous meeting to just see how they are dealt with. Oh, okay. All right. <clears throat> so you have to research things. And then, of course, you put your own spin on it. But I get the feeling from talking to you that not only, I mean, yes, yes, you're intelligent. Yes, you do the research and you have uh, somewhere you're going. But I do get the feeling that you've got uh, uh, some kind of, a, as I was alluding to before, an innate sense of uh, just being able to, I don't know, listen between the lines or hear things that aren't said or just pick up on vibes somewhere um, mm. in an intuitive way. Well, that's right. I, yeah, I do. Um, I mean, I do have <clears throat> issues um, sometimes. If I, I pick up people's moods and feelings and stress and tension, which I find very difficult to deal with sometimes because the way I react to that uh, is not the way that most people would react because I, I, I'm empathetic towards it. And I did, I did work as a Samaritan back in the very early 80s um, which is uh, the suicide line over here, Samaritans. And you have a different one over there, don't you? A different name. Mm-hmm. So you have a suicide hotline. Yeah, yeah. Well, over here it's called the Samaritans. And um, so, you know, having dealt and 
talk to people who go through um, terror. I mean, my dad committed suicide when I was six, you know. So, I mean, it's, oh, it, I didn't okay. go to Jordan. Yeah, well, I didn't join the Samaritans for that, but I didn't know that he'd done that until I was 20 when we got married. And I had, because I was under 21, I had to um, get my mother to sign um, a certificate before we could get married two days before. And I also, when I, uh, and something happened, I think, I had to get my father's death certificate, and then I, I saw it on there. Oh, okay. So you didn't know before that. No, I knew, I, I guess what he'd done, but yeah, um, yeah. It, it, no one had ever mentioned it, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, well... I mean, I remember the day before, clearly, as clear as I can see it now, you know, so, um, at a massive row, so I remember that very, very well, Um but I didn't realize, well, I, I guess he'd done what he'd done, but I, I wasn't sure um, for many years. Mm-hmm. I'm so sorry to hear that, Graham. But I guess that uh, maybe that just sort of heightens your, your sense of, um, like, as I said, intuition or empathy. I, uh, I think before I've thought of you as an empath. Um, but mm. while I've still got you here, and you've been so you've been so generous with your time and as well as talents being on the show and telling the stories. I, I just feel like I'd, I'd love to have you come back sometime and talk more because you've got such fascinating stories um, that I, I just almost don't want to let you go, but tell <laughs> people, I want to know people can get, can get, well, for one thing, they should go to Tabitha.com or GrahamSlater.com. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. If they if they want books, I mean, <clears throat> I know your listeners and your your program goes all over the world these days. The internet is wonderful. I mean, I did the BBC yesterday for my birthday, and uh, within ten minutes of finishing, I had orders from the books coming through, um, which, which was absolutely wonderful. Um, but I have a my website is Graham Slater. My surname is spelled S C L A T E R, so it's GrahamSlater dot com, and on there there'll be interviews and. <clears throat> there's videos. I did a video for the new book, and uh, all the books are there, and you can buy them direct from the site. But people overseas, your best bet is to go to Amazon. Mm-hmm. Um, Amazon and just put in Graham Slater, and all the books are there. Uh, I mean, a great book for people who love music is Ticket to Ride, because that is set uh, in Hamburg in the 60s when I lived there. Um, I call it a work of faction. But, I mean, anyone who loves music, <laughs> well, because it's facts, you see, it's, it's uh-huh. facts, but my spin on it, because, um, I, I mean, I'll let you into another secret. I tried to write it before I was married, and I kept trying, you know, just sitting down and thinking, and I couldn't do it um, because I, I thought what I was doing was perfectly normal, and what was happening was perfectly normal, and it's only when we had our, our two daughters um, and I, well, I had kidney cancer in 2004, so I actually then revisited the couple of pages that I've written in 1968 and realized that it just wouldn't work. But I needed to have a different, um, different head. You know, if you, I mean, you read a lot of these books written by young girls and young guys, um, you know, their, their life story and they're 18, you know. <laughs> Um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And you know what I mean? And a lot of them do it. I mean, they've all done it, haven't they? Britney Spears and all, all these artists have done it over the years and people over here have done it. But um, I just couldn't, I just couldn't, I, I don't know. I just didn't work. So it wasn't until 2004 that I actually 
went back to it. And then I started to work on it and realized that uh, rather than spreading it over five years, I did it over 15 months. Um, and I say to everyone, everything in the book happened, but not necessarily to me. And the, and the, um, <laughs> the keyboard player in it is called Reg. And Reg was also an organist, um, <laughs> a famous organist in the 50s and here in England. Um, so I, I had to change the names, but uh, I, some real names are kept. Uh, the venues are right, but the situations, yeah, were things that I went through. And um, it works incredibly well. And it's, um, it's you know, it's, it's a memorial, if you like, to not a memoir, but a memorial to <clears throat> people who did do what we did. And there were thousands of us that went to Germany when they were very young and were then professional musicians. And it's what the Beatles went through, which very few people actually know about because it's never been filmed properly. Ah, okay. Uh, your husband would like, like Ticket to Ride. I like that faction. Faction, huh? What's that? Faction, yeah. Yeah, your husband would love Ticket to Ride. Oh, I'm sure, I'm sure. And I'm. Um, he already knows. <laughs> I've got a list of books for him that we've ordered. So, yeah, he knows we're going to get that, too. I think you definitely will. After all, if it weren't for him, I wouldn't have known what you meant by Farfisa. <laughs> he told me just There you time. go. No, if you if if you order ticket to ride any time, go for the one with the, the the one because there are several versions now, and the most recent one because it's republished in 2012. And go for the one with the guy with sunglasses smoking the cigar or cheroot or joint on the front page. Go for that cover because that book's got photographs and it's got question and answers in there and. Um, it's it's just a, it's loads of reviews in there as well, so it's a definitive version, really. Right. So if you ever get well, it, go for that one. Okay, and so I want to give uh, some people sending me messages here. Uh, first of all, yes, I will be sharing the links to where you can buy Graham Slater's books on all of my social media, not just Madame Perry Salon, but for Jennifer Maudette Perry as well, or Perry Jen, oh. I will be sharing them. So uh, <laughs> so let me see. So a lot, of, a lot of people say they listen while they're driving or walking, so don't worry. I know you can't write it down, but you know I'll have it. If not, just ask me. Um, also, people who have said, who have left sent comments, um, Amy, um, says, thank you, um, enjoying the show. This sounds like a lot of fun. Thank you, Amy. Uh, also, Chris, I don't know where he lives. Matt in Georgia, thanks for um, Matt. Juliana Harumi Arai, she's from, she's, uh, she's in Brazil, uh, and she's the one that had messaged me earlier, too. She's oh, she yeah. was getting ready yeah. to listen with us. Um, she's a great listener. She always has good information for me, too. And uh, who else did I get a message from? Uh, Jules in North Carolina, William in Canada, thank you. Yes, it's Graham Slater, G-R-A-H-A-M-S-C-L, it's a silent L, Correct. C-L-A-T-R, and again, I'll be sharing that. So Yeah, uh, I mean, going, okay. interrupting you, hatred is the key, sold an amazing amount in America, um, and they were also selling it in the shops in Niagara Falls as well. No, no kidding. I don't think it's there anymore, but they were selling it there. They, they ordered loads, hundreds of them, and they, they were selling it. But um, I've, I'm actually getting off a – I've written a three-part script series for the BBC, which is going off just before the holiday, Christmas holiday. Um, 
I don't know whether they will make it because it's going to be quite expensive. You know, you've got a sea battle at the beginning and all sorts of things, but that can all be done with CGI now. But that's going uh-huh. off to them. Um, and oh, and I tell you, I, I sent a, a couple. Steven Spielberg was over here filming War Horse, and he filmed that part of that was filmed on Dartmoor where the prison is. And I know he flew into Exeter Airport, and I knew that he. Uh, he didn't go into the prison, but I know he was taken there to have a look at it because it's a, a place, it's very foreboding. It's on a grey, drizzly day. It's horrible. Um, so I I sent a book. I sent a copy of Hatred. Um, woof, woof. <laughs> woof, get down. <laughs> Seriously. I sent, a co- I, I sent a copy of the book over to his studio, to his office um, in L.A., and the letter I had back... And it's quite common now, and I know about that. But it said, we didn't ask you to send this. I am Steven Spielberg's lawyer. We didn't ask you to send it. We haven't read it. And if we make anything similar, um, <laughs> you know, we, you, you can't hold us responsible. And, and a friend of mine did the same with uh, the Broccoli's for James Bond, sent a song in, and he had almost an identical letter um, because they're terrified of being sued, of course. But um, yeah. it would make a great film. But he, he loved filming on Dartmoor. He said it was one of the best places for light and scenery that he'd been and filmed on. So I just thought, well, if he liked it that much, then he'd love to make Hatred is the Key, you know? Mm-hmm. But uh, you never know. You never know. Hey, you were talking about being, uh, like the Slaters, being good at plants. And that's one of the enrichment talks you give on cruises is about uh, plants and flowers. Yeah, you thought yes. about writing a book about that? Are you planning one or? Um, not at the moment. I, although Zeta, who's one of the uh, lovely people in um, I Will Survive, she loves plants. And <laughs> there is a, on a houseboat in Amsterdam, she has got some wonderful plants on there, um, which I go into slight detail about. But no, I haven't thought of writing a book on that. Um, maybe. I've got a love of orchids. I love orchids. And... Um, uh, I've got a songwriter that I've worked with for years in New Zealand, and her husband died last year, and she's met a new young man, and he grows and breeds orchids. So she sent me some wonderful photographs. And I've got a cousin in Australia who also grows and breeds orchids. So I've spent a lot of time um, researching them, and I absolutely love orchids, you know. And um, I've got a load here in my study. I've got five all in flower in my study oh, how um, gorgeous. tonight. You know, there's another great. Yeah, There's another person I'm sure you know. I, I got to meet him and meet him a few years back, and had his books, and he's been on the show. Um, who, although you think of him as a musician, he did uh, botany or gardening in school, learned a lot about it, and he's written that in some of his books too. It's um, Hugh Cornwell. Oh, he, oh, oh, you come. Well, yeah, I mean, yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, um, well, that's the thing, isn't it? You know, I, I, people do, because I think, I think if you're writing, you want things around you that relax you. I always have a, a, a burner with, um, you know, a, what, I don't know what you call it, essential oils in. Mm-hmm. And um, this week I've been burning um, mandarin, grapefruit and geranium, not all at the same time. Um, so I set one of those up and uh, that'll last two or three hours um, and I love it but you've got to have the right things around and maybe one day um, Jennifer I will write about 
plants and flowers. I've got some wonderful pictures um, of great-great-grandfathers and nurseries and vehicles and goodness knows what, you know. So, um, <clears throat> yeah, maybe one day I might, but I need to I need to want to do it because any writing, you've got to spend mm-hmm. so much time working on it. And unless it's the right time and you're really in that mood for writing that, it will never work. You know, you've got to grab that, seize the moment, carpe diem, oh, seize yeah. the day, seize, you know, and, and if, it, if it's right, then I will do it, um, certainly. All right. Well, I am so glad you're here, and I, I'm waiting for that. I'm waiting for everything else you do, but and, and keep it up, because I know I'm going to be reading the others, and I'm going to be ready for new material, too. I'm going to, I'm going to put them. Thank you so much, Graham, for all of your talent, for sharing with people, for your fabulous stories, for making the time to be here especially with all the problems I had. Uh, I am so grateful to you. I know. I know. And everyone, get I Will Survive. <clears throat> Believe me, you're going to love it. And I know you because you're going to be calling me. You're going to be messaging me and saying, I had no idea. Uh, but I did. And uh, maybe maybe you'll come back and uh, maybe you'll be on cruises again and we can all meet up on cruises one day. That would be fantastic. And Wouldn't rather it be just, than, eh? I'm looking forward to it. But, uh, you know, I've got... Hey, like Jesse says, you got to keep hope alive. Now, I usually go out, close out to my song, which is a swing tune called Everybody's Got the Swing. But because of the rocker, I'm going to go with my friend Daryl Rhodes and his song, I Got the Devil in My Pants. Graham um, Slater, take care of yourself. I got the devil in my pants. Thank you very much. I got the devil in my Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. (gasps) No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.